0: On today's docket, we'll discuss the impact of body cameras worn by police officers on police interactions and the legal analysis of those interactions. I'll discuss an article by Professor Oren Kerr that was published on the Rollak Conspiracy website recently, which brought up some interesting observations and conclusions. The 4 Legal English Podcast is now in session. Welcome to the 4 Legal English Podcast. This is the show for lawyers, law students, and other professionals from all over the world who want to improve both their legal English and legal knowledge. In this podcast, we discuss different legal topics, such as law in the news, law in practice, legal writing, legal movies, and other issues. This podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, consult an attorney. You can check out our blog articles, available courses, and the show notes for this episode on our website. That's fours in the number four, legalenglish, no spaces or dashes, dot com. legalenglishcom I'm Timothy Barrett, your host. I'm a former practicing attorney from the United States, more recently a law professor in Tbilisi, Georgia, and currently an author and podcast host, among other things. How Body Cameras Are Changing Legal Analysis of Police-Citizen Interactions, Episode 29. Article by Professor Kerr. So this episode is a little bit different from our prior episodes. I'm going to discuss an article and then kind of give my thoughts on it and bring up some other points, and go off on, on a couple other tangents. But I want to start out with this article. I, I ran across it and thought it was pretty interesting and worth discussing a little bit of. The article itself is titled How Body-Worn Cameras Are Changing Fourth Amendment Law. It was written by Orrin Kerr and appeared on the Volokh Conspiracy website. Oren S. Kerr is a professor at the University of California Berkeley School of Law. Professor Kerr specializes in criminal procedure and computer crime law. The Volokh Conspiracy is a group blog Co-founded by Eugene Volokh and Alexander Volokh in 2002. If you are looking for some legal news, legal analysis to read, besides for Legal English website, of course, Volokh uh, Conspiracy is a great place. It has a lot of different authors. Uh, most of them are are law professors or other experts in the legal field, and they write about various things. You know, it could be about their Topics, their expertise or other general things in the news related to law, but they have a very large stable of experts And it's very interesting to, to read some of their some of their beliefs or their news or their analysis of different things going on So it's always a, a pretty good read. That's Volokh conspiracy V-O-L-O-K-H Volokh conspiracy Of course, I'll leave a link to the article into the Voloch conspiracy site which is hosted on on the Reason site, in the show notes. So please check out the show notes. The article itself, we'll talk about directly, raised some pretty interesting developments and kind of predictions how how it will go in the future. And I've, I've had similar thoughts myself. I was a police officer. I was a police officer with the New York Police Department, which is the largest police department in the United States. And after that, I became a prosecutor. As a police officer, I never dealt with with body cameras. I was gone long before they became became normal. In fact, I, I was no longer a prosecutor when body cameras became normal, but I did deal a lot with dash cams. So I had some pretty strong impressions of dealing with, with dash cams and just video evidence in general and how it changes things. One of the things that the prosecutors talk a lot about is the CSI effect. CSI was a television show where I think it had a few different spinoffs, but it was a famous television show that kind of shows crime scene investigations CSI but as more and more of the public watch those shows they kind of expected you know the smoking gun or the DNA evidence the blood evidence you know, something that kind of proves oh yes 100% this person you know did the crime committed the murder whatever it was however in the real life that doesn't usually happen you know we we don't have 100% certainty You know, to convict in a criminal court, we call it beyond a reasonable doubt. The courts really don't specify what percentage of certainty it is, but it's certainly not 100%. You know, how often could you ever be 100% certain of anything? Because of that kind of CSI effect of of people watching the show and kind of expecting one thing, and then they get called in for jury duty, and then they're experiencing the real world, which doesn't live up to uh, fantasy sometimes... then it's much more difficult to get a conviction. They're expecting much more evidence or much more impressive evidence. So it's kind of interesting how technology as well as perceptions change jury outcomes. But let's get back to the article. Body-worn cameras. So these are cameras that are worn by police officers and they're usually attached either in the center of their of their chest or maybe on, on one side, but part of their uniform. It does have some kind of automation where it automatically starts recording it when certain things happen, or, of course, the officer can hit a button and it'll start recording. But there's a high degree of automation to it. And some of them will, will have, like, the ability, once it does start recording, it can go back a minute and, and save the recording, which is really just another way to say it's always recording, but it's not always saving the data, but it'll save that last minute, 30 seconds or two minutes, something like that. So if the officer notices something happening, you know, if he hits the button, it'll start recording, but it'll save the last 30 seconds, minute, two minutes, whatever, or whatever the system is set to. It should be automatically backed up. I mean, nowadays, a lot of things go to the cloud automatically. Or at the end of the the shift, the officer turns it in or connects it to the computer, and it's backed up at that point, whatever the the particular system is, but it's backed up on a daily, if not more, basis. And Normally, police departments would have some kind of protocol to determine which videos are saved. For instance, if there's a video that was recorded that's related to an arrest or maybe a police report, then obviously that video should be saved and it's part of the evidence. It's part of that report or part of that arrest evidence or that investigation file, whatever it is. But if it's not saved, then, you know, eventually it's going to be lost. But it's kind of like surveillance cameras. You know, if you have a surveillance camera in front of a store or inside the store, you know, it'll, it'll save that surveillance for, a, you know, a day or a couple of days or a week. But, you know, if the police go and say, oh, there was somebody suspicious in here five months ago, most stores aren't going to have that that footage from five months ago. You know, there's only so much data you can store. So it's the same thing with the body cameras. One of the things, as they're developing, not only the technology, but the rules, the regulations. They have to kind of develop, well, which videos do we save? How long do we save them? That sort of thing. The cameras themselves are kind of like... Uh, gopros if you're familiar with a gopro camera you know those are commercially available it's the same kind of idea obviously just a few different requirements for the that are made for the police and then several different companies that i think that make them do police officers where you live do they wear body cameras is that common i know in a lot of countries not just the u.s they are becoming more and more uh, standard and kind of ubiquitous they're always there Professor Kerr's Hypothesis. Let me read a little bit from the article, then we'll start talking about it. Quote, I read a lot of new Fourth Amendment cases, and in the last year or two, I've noticed something interesting. Body-worn cameras seem to be changing Fourth Amendment law. To be clear, the cameras aren't having an explicit effect. Courts don't have camera-specific rules. But body-worn cameras are changing how courts review police-citizen interactions. The ability to go to the tape allows courts to reconstruct in detail exactly what happened, and that lets courts scrutinize much more closely what the police are doing, and to adopt doctrines that rely on that second-by-second scrutiny. So the Fourth Amendment, this is the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, which has to do with what we often say is search and seizure. The amendment itself says the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. And it goes on from there. That's the the relevant part. So when police interact with citizens, with people, there are Fourth Amendment issues. If I come up to you on the street and say, hey, stop, you can just ignore me, right? I'm just a regular person. But if someone in uniform, in police uniform, you kind of have to stop. You can't just ignore that. Maybe they just want to, to ask you what time it is or something, but you don't know that. And so you're not free to just ignore them. So how they interact you know, should be somewhat monitored. There should be rules and things like that, that what is acceptable by society and by the law and what is not. Having this body cam footage having you know almost everything nowadays and of course it's not just body cam but you also have people with cell phones and things like that there's more and more surveillance cameras everywhere so more and more of, of everything is monitored there is videotape so it's kind of changing to some extent how we live our lives as i said before as a police officer or a prosecutor i didn't deal with body worn cameras but as a prosecutor, I dealt with dash cam videos a lot. A dash cam is a video recorder that's mounted in the dash of a police cruiser, or RMP, the police car. And so usually it's forward-facing. Sometimes they might have backwards-facing so you can see the if somebody's arrested and they're in the back of the car, you can see their reactions and, and that sort of thing as well. But you know, most of the time it's just forward-facing, so you're kind of looking out the front of the car, front of the dashboard. Through the front window very useful for traffic stops if the police see something or you know especially if it's in front of them for example the car weaving going over the the white or the yellow line going back or you know doing something else dangerous going through a red light going through a stop sign uh, or whatever it was whatever the officer sees that rises to reasonable suspicion or probable cause that allows him to stop the vehicle well You can see that with the dash cam. So you're not necessarily relying on the officer telling the truth. Did they really weave? Did they really go through that red light? You know, if there's a dash cam video, you know, you can see it. It's much clearer to establish. When I was a prosecutor, it was very common, especially for state police or highway patrol, to have these dash cam videos. Some other agencies would use them as well. But they were very useful for oftentimes uh, DUI investigations, drunk driving driving under the influence and not just the stop but often they would talk to the suspect in front of the police vehicle so it could be recorded you know so all of their interactions and this is very useful if the person actually is drunk because you can see them you know maybe unable to stand on their feet they're waving back and forth sometimes falling down you can hear on the audio you know them slurring their speech, not being able to, to answer questions, it makes a much stronger case in, in some cases. You know, even when I was a prosecutor, I noticed that because of these videos, you can examine minute details that you could not if there was no recording. You know, and, and Professor Kurz brings this up too. You know, normally the courts, you know, the prosecutor, the defense attorney, or or the jury, if it's for them to decide. Are just relying on the witness testimony and, and often it's just two people you have the police officer and you have the defendant and not just their own biases or things like that but you're talking about something that happened months ago and so you know gee did a happen before b or did it happen right after b or you know did it happen at the same time things like that may be difficult to remember especially if you don't think that they're that important at the time whereas if it's recorded then, you know, the officer, the defendant, the judge, the jury, the, the lawyers, prosecutor, defense attorney can all look at it and they can see what happened. I mean, they don't necessarily need the witnesses to establish something, you know, that they can see for their own selves with their own eyes. And I also saw that it quickly went from being extra evidence, like, oh, look, we have this video. This is makes our case so much stronger, to being primary or essential evidence. Oh no! There's no there's no dashcam video. Uh, this is a bad case. This is a, suddenly a weak case because you're missing that evidence. And I've, I've experienced this as well when the officer says, "Oh, my dashcam wasn't working that night," you know, which I've heard many many times. That raises suspicion, even for me, the prosecutor. You know, at the time, and former police officer. Whenever I heard that, it's like you know, just kind of roll your eyes, like, oh, "Come on, not this one again." And so that, that was very frustrating to, to encounter that. And so as a prosecutor, you know, sometimes you'd have to kind of weigh that. You know, gee, why waste my time, you know, defending this, this car stop or, you know, prosecuting this case if there's no dash cam? It's a much weaker case than the other cases I have on my docket. So, you know, maybe I'll just try to get a quick resolution to this. And I think Professor Kerr is right, that video technology does change police stops in the court's analysis. You know, the courts get very used to it as well. What do you mean there's no video? Why, why aren't we able to see the stop? Why can't we see what the officer says that he saw? <music> Cases. Let me quote again from Professor Kerr. Quote, Traffic stops are the most common police-citizen interaction, and a stop for speeding or a broken taillight can often turn into something more. Given that, what happens during a traffic stop is super important. One of the important doctrinal tools to limit traffic stops, maybe the most important, is the time element. In Rodriguez v. United States in 2015, the court held that the permitted time of a traffic stop is determined by the time that an officer actually did or should have completed the mission of the stop. The mission being the safety-related rationales that permit traffic stops in the first place, like writing a ticket, making sure the car is registered, the driver has a valid license, etc. Close quote. So the case that Professor Kerr mentions, Rodriguez versus the United States, is very important regarding time, the length of the car stop. So even though there's a legitimate reason for stopping that car, that doesn't mean that it can be stopped for hours and hours, you know, while while they kind of figure out what's going on. That doesn't mean the police have the right to stop the car indefinitely. You know, they have to deal with whatever was the, the reason, if it's a broken taillight, broken headlight, something like that. Okay, let's let's look at it, we'll write a ticket and then send the driver on the way. You can't just detain them for hours for something simple like that. Now, body-worn cameras, you know, kind of fits into this, this rubric of time. Now we can analyze every minute of the stop. You know, was it reasonable every minute or every question, every action? Gee, why did the officer, you know, why was he standing there for those 30 seconds, for that two minutes? What, you know, why wasn't he asking for the paperwork? Why wasn't he running the paperwork? You know, sometimes police officers will run the license or registration through the computer you know, make sure it is still valid. There's not outstanding warrants or something like that. But that should be done fairly quickly. So if the officer is kind of lollygagging, they're they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, maybe because they're waiting for backup to arrive, something like that. Well, that's not legitimate. You know, that might be violating the motorist, the driver's Fourth Amendment rights. And now you can kind of see it in real time. You know, If, if there's dash cam video or, or certainly body worn camera, you can see it as it plays out. You're not relying on just the memory. And so this is exemplified in the case, the recent case from the Supreme Court of Idaho, State versus Riley, this just came out this year. The Supreme Court of Idaho is the top court in the state of Idaho. This decision would be binding on all state courts in Idaho. And Professor Kerr kind of explains that in that opinion, the court goes through a second-by-second reconstruction of the traffic stop, looking at everything that the officer did, every question that he asked, and every pause. And so kind of figuring out: was this reasonable, was this appropriate? And quote, according to the court. The officer spent exactly eight seconds asking the driver if there were drugs in the car and later spends another 20 seconds discussing the situation with backup officers who arrived on the scene. The court's opinion includes this chart to explain the timeline. Close quote. So I've already got a lot of cases in front of a court, you know, the trial court, and I don't remember ever, you know, really worrying about eight seconds or 20 seconds. You know, that, that's, that's a very minute level of detail. But here you have the Supreme Court of Idaho looking at this. Well, gee, it took 8 seconds to do this, 20 seconds to do this, and kind of adding up all these things. And in the court opinion, a diagram is included. They kind of made up a timeline. So I'll include this in the show notes. Please check it out. It's worth just looking at it. I've never seen a diagram like, like this, a timeline like this, um, you know, in a, in a court opinion before but it demonstrates how exacting, how precise the court was in analyzing the officer's actions. You know, were they reasonable? Let me quote from Professor Kerr one final time. Quote, ultimately the court rules that the government wins by 20 seconds. That is, although the outside the mission goings-on added 28 seconds, the dog alerted 48 seconds before the first officer finished writing his ticket for the stop so the dog alerted within the time window that would have existed without the outside the mission conduct by 20 seconds close quote so can you imagine that you know because the timing worked out they had a 20 second window that because they had this dog alerted you know within that 20 second window it was a valid stop now they could arrest the person or investigate further But if the dog had been slower, if he took another 22 seconds, 21 seconds, now it would have been an invalid stop. They wouldn't have been authorized to continue the stop. They should have let the motorist go. So that's a very minute level of detail. What do you think? Effectiveness of body-worn cameras. So what do you think? Are body-worn cameras effective? The United States Department of Justice has a National Institute of Justice that did research on this a few years ago, and it was inconclusive. They did cite the rapid growth of practice of of wearing the cameras becoming much more prevalent. I'm sure since this report, I think it was three or four years ago, there's been even more growth of a lot of police departments adopting body-worn cameras. But this report seemed to focus on if it changed officer behavior, you know, which if it did not, then that's probably a good thing, right? If police officers act the same, if they're being watched or not, that means that they're honest. You know, if you you notice people who act differently when other people are watching them, that's probably not an honest person. There's probably something shady going on there. Now, the report also didn't look at prosecutions, which I would be interested in. You know, were the cases stronger with this type of evidence, with body-worn cameras? And I I bet that they are. Uh, But like I said, I have that caveat. You know, now cases without the body-worn cameras are suddenly weaker than they were before. So overall, I think the cases are probably better. There's probably more evidence, which is good. But some of those cases, which are valid cases, are, are look a little weak because there's no body camera. And it also didn't look at how other people reacted when they were being recorded, which is kind of a, another interesting area. You know, I read that in many police departments, civilian complaints have gone down because of body-worn cameras. And so you know, before these cameras, it was somewhat common that if you have a negative interaction with a police officer you can complain about it later. Make a civilian complaint. You know, complain that they were unprofessional, they were rude, that, you know, they didn't do their, follow their procedures or maybe use of force. You know, they were more, more violent. They should have used less force. It was not appropriate to use as much force as they did. And sometimes these complaints might rise to a civil lawsuit or a criminal case against the officer or the police department. Or other times it's just a a black mark on their file you know maybe they will get fired maybe they'll have some kind of punishment depends on on what happens these have gone down these number of complaints which is kind of interesting because the theory is well the camera would support the officer so the the would-be complainant is not going to bother saying that the officer you know said these words or did these things if the investigator can just look at the body camera and then determine in 30 seconds that it didn't happen. So the number of civilian complaints have gone down. And I know many officers were or are reluctant to wear cameras, to have every action monitored and under scrutiny. And honestly, I know I would not want to work like that. I wouldn't want to be on on the camera all the time, and I say that as I'm recording a podcast. But when I was a cop, I knew many officers hated to be monitored and even feared that the supervisors would know where they were at any minute. You know, they, they didn't like that. They kind of knew it was coming, but they were not embracing it whatsoever, especially a lot of the old timers. But it seems like many officers have been convinced that the body-worn camera helps them more than it hurts them. You know, it backs up their version of events. And it's also a counterbalance to cell phone videos. You know, where often you see this, uh, you know, on social media, where they might, someone might capture something uh, with a, often you see this on social media, there's some kind of police interaction, and they they capture probably the worst parts of it, the violent struggle, right? But they don't capture what happened before that. And that's where the body-worn camera, come in very handy. you know it's recording the whole interaction and like I said, it might even record you know a minute or two before the interaction starts. So it can provide the kind of the context yes, the police officer was violent, but what happened before? you know then you might be able to decide was that use of force justified? was it appropriate or or not? And it's also interesting that this really only applies to you know, state and local police officers. In the United States, federal officers do not wear body cams. In fact, they don't allow local police officers to use them when working together, which is kind of disturbing, I think. You know, somewhat similar FBI agents don't record their interviews. You know, of course, they all have smartphones, but they don't record any of the interviews. So all you have is the agent's testimony or the suspect's testimony. I think in the past... Courts and juries would tend to trust the agents, but I think that time has, has come and gone. I think too much corruption, for especially for the, for the FBI, has come to light in recent years. So I, I think that, that kind of goodwill or trust has, has kind of disappeared. There was a bill that was proposed a couple of years ago that would have gotten rid of the, the prohibition of federal officers not wearing body cams, but that didn't get any support. You know, who knows? Maybe in a few years it, it will, but I'm not. I'm not too optimistic about that either. But what do you think? All right. I hope you liked this episode. Please go to the show notes and check out the link to the article by Professor Kerr, as well as at least take a look at the diagram that was included in the Idaho Supreme Court decision at the bottom of the page of the show notes. You can put in some comments. So tell me what you think of body cams. Is it a good idea for officers to use this? Or do you have any experience with them? Let me know. What questions do you have about today's episode? You can post those questions or any comments on the show notes. This is a great way to practice and improve your legal English skills. You can go to the website 4, as in the number 4, legalenglish, no spaces or dashes.com. dot com, for legalenglishcom you can check out our blog articles and show notes for this episode. And check out the episode quizzes. It would be fantastic if you could subscribe and give us a review. If you would leave us five stars and a nice comment, it would really help the algorithm and other people to find our podcast. If you leave a great review, I might even read it on the air. So start writing. The 4 Legal English podcast is adjourned. Don't miss the next Docket Call.